You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Ovid.tv is the independent streaming home for people who want to watch foreign films, thought-provoking documentaries, and art house gems that are impossible to find anywhere else. For just $6.99 a month, you'll have access to a cornucopia of films to watch anytime and on any device. Vanity Fair calls Ovid.tv a fantastic streamer for people with a taste for foreign, political, and otherwise beyond the American mainstream films. Discover art house titles, documentaries, works of global cinema all in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. Highlights include the four-part docuseries The Hitler Chronicles, which charts Hitler's improbable rise, his mastery of imagery and crowd psychology, and his consummate skill in exploiting the weakness in others. From now until October 21st, 2020, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. Just head on over to www.ovid.tv and sign up with the coupon code PROJECTION at checkout. Showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm Mike White. Joining me today is Mr. Jim Donahue. Uh, permit me to flap my flapper at you, Mike. Also back in the booth is Mr. Noel Thingball. Wait, didn't we record this yesterday? This is Tomorrow I Will Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea from a script co-written by Milos Masarek. The film stars Peter Kostka as both Jan and Carol Burish. Twin brothers, one who helped invent a rocket that allows people to travel through time, the other who pilots it. A group plans to rent out a rocket just for them, and rather than going back to do a little sport hunting in the time of the dinosaurs, like Ray Bradbury's The Sound of Thunder, they want to go back to 1944 and speak to Hitler. Let's just say that things don't go as planned. And we begin somewhere in South America. We've been debating whether this is Buenos Aires, Rio, someplace in Peru. We definitely are setting the stage for some Nazis who have escaped the war. And we are uh, catching up with some of our main characters here. And this is, uh, well, it's directed by... Yindrich Polak, who had done some sci-fi, though that wasn't necessarily his forte. Um, I'm curious, have, have you guys seen any of his films before? I did, in prep for this, I watched Ikari XB1, uh, which is magnificent. And then I did watch a handful of episodes of his 70s children's TV series, Pan Tao, which is, which is really quite wonderful and, in fact, stars the guy who plays the uh, American husband in this. And this is my, my first viewing of, of his films. I love this opening. Yeah, this is <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Especially this music is fantastic. Now, Mike, had you seen any of his films before? 
I had. I'd definitely seen uh, Voyage to the End of the Universe, um, and I'd seen it both in that form and in the original form. Oh yeah, I got the Polish Blu-ray. It's great. I was more familiar with uh, Milos Makarek's films because he has written just a ton of things that I've enjoyed, and also uh, Josef Nezvadba. Uh, who I'd also seen his um, I Killed Einstein Gentleman, uh, which is very similar in a lot of ways to this. And both of those gentlemen, Milos and Yosef, had uh, worked on this and I Killed St- Einstein Gentleman. And thank you for sharing that movie as well, because that was an absolute treat. Yeah, I love older Chlipsky films, and he just always made so many great ones. Makarek had written a bunch of things with Lipsky, uh, and just they had this anarchic feel. And so many of the actors are the same as that. I, If you had shown me Tomorrow I Will Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea without telling me who directed it, I would have said that it was Oldrich Chlipsky. They do feel like films by the same guy, yeah. Yeah, because you've got Vladimir Mesnik in here, Lestmil Brodsky, Yuri Sovak, just so many very familiar Czech faces in this movie, and especially people that had worked with Lipsky just a ton. Well, here's a question for you. What do you feel are some of the stylistic things that differentiate the directors? I am not sure. I haven't seen enough Polak films to say what his uh, his stylistic uh, intentions are compared to Lipsky. Lipsky is very anarchic, and this film has that feel to it. I love that shot of her face. <laughs> this feels a little bit more sedate to me. Yeah. And I got to say, this is my introduction to Czech cinema, which has is, is been interesting. And I know you usually do a, you know, a Czech spotlight every year. Um, but yeah, no, I had never really sat down and watched any of it before. And looking around, it's it's interesting how hit and miss it is in terms of availability. Some of it is like really easy to find and other stuff like we've talked in the past about the death of Tarzan. That's hard to find. <laughs> yeah, and there's another one that... Um was based on uh, actually a few that were based on Nesvadba's works that are just, I mean, Miss Golem I can find, but I cannot find the subtitles for that. Uh, I -hmm. think the lost face is the same thing, but yeah. Um, Then there's one where I don't even want to try to pronounce it. Bibik Z Zenmunde, which the half wit of Zenamud. That's one of his stories. And that that's on the D- same DVD as Death of Tarzan, because they're both short films. They, they, they were released as a package. But yeah, no subtitles. When I heard about this movie the first time, that these guys were time-traveling back to the time of Hitler, for sure I thought that they were going back to kill Hitler. But no, they're going back to help Hitler. <laughs> Absolutely thought the same thing. It's the Nazis. Because we've seen that so many times or heard that story. If you could time travel, would you go back and kill Hitler? I had never heard, would you go back and help Hitler win the war? You had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. But you also had people 
that were very fine people on both sides. Yeah, I love that we have two films where that's not the plot of either one. One is let's go back and help Hitler, and the other is let's go back and kill Einstein. I love these guys all in their white coats, and they're just so full of themselves. I should point out, we now know the film is, is set in, I believe, 1996, based on uh, his age. But thank goodness they're all taking anti-aging pills. There, there's not enough neon and flannel. Yeah, strangely, they seem to, most of the clothing looks like uh, 1977 to me. I wonder why that is. Yeah. Not all of it. I mean, I'm not sure what this woman is wearing. Uh, that could That's kind of time, timeless. Yeah, that orange shirt is classic. Now, and I have to apologize in advance if I get anyone's names wrong, but uh, the, the lead Nazi, uh, Jiri Sovak, who was also the lead in killing in, in I Killed Einstein. Both these films have made me such a fan of his. I just want to track down more checks and just to see more of his work. Yeah, he's pretty great. He's fantastic. My favorite is uh, Vladimir Mesnik, who is, um, what's his name, Krauss in this, that they bring along, I guess, as muscle or something. The buck tooth Walter Matthau. He doesn't fit in with the Nazis, and he doesn't fit in with the pilot. I guess he's just there as a hired hand. Yeah. He's a thug. He's a kind of an ineffectual thug, though. Yeah, he's not the best, but I, I, I'm assuming that's why he was hired. Yeah. It's not really made clear. I never put that together, because I always just thought he was one of the Nazis, but yeah, he is a hired goon. Yeah, because he's outside of the room when they're initially meeting and brought in with... Is it Gregor, the pilot, setting up the entire plot here? I love this kind of Ocean's Eleven narration, talking about what they're going to do. And, and then that Krauss is just such a lech, <laughs> taking pictures of people sunbathing. It's, it's like a reverse heist movie where they have to undo the plot. I love just the weird sound effect over the, the car trunk. And then the tone every time they like they're just announcing in the airport. Please go to gate to him, you know. It's like a sound of thunder where people are taking these different time travel excursions. Remember the advice your father gave you on your wedding day. If you ever travel back in time, don't step on anything. Because even the tiniest change can alter the future in ways you can't imagine. Fine. As long as I stand perfectly still and don't touch anything, I won't destroy the future. Stupid bug! You go squish now! Nice they have bargains for kids. Well, it's good. You know, it's like field trips. The uh, National Theater Fire is a real thing. Late 19th century in Prague, it burned down and was considered a national tragedy. Hmm. And I suppose we are in Prague now. Though they had made a stop in Washington, D.C. to pick up a hydrogen bomb. Yeah, that bridge that we saw them in, uh, standing on a, a minute or so ago, is in Prague. And unless all bridges in Prague look the same, I believe I crossed across that one. I went to Prague about 15 years ago. Oh, very nice. Oh, oh beautiful city. I've always wanted to go. Oh, highly, highly recommended if you can. At the time, it was a cheap package deal. <laughs> if you can get a cheap package deal, go. Well, who knows after this pandemic how uh, how expensive or cheap flights are going to be. Prague and Budapest. I'm glad I got to Budapest before the fascists took over. 
cheap, cheap package to Prague is basically an entire decade of the Sci-Fi Channel. So here we've got uh, Peter Costa Kostka, who was quite a staple in Czech cinema. He's got I don't know how many credits to his name. Two hundred sixteen. He's got that amiable leading man quality. Though he can play, I mean, here he's Gregor, and here he's a jerk, and now he's Jan, and Jan, well, he's kind of, he's not necessarily the best character in the world. He is, he, it feels like he's a, uh, afraid of his own shadow. He's anxious. And here we have the titular scalding with tea. Ah, uh, we have title. At least he doesn't say it in the movie. We don't have to stand up and applaud. You would think in a world where you can literally just dissolve all your dishes, you would ha- there would be better treatments for you casually burn yourself than having to fully bandage him, his arm. I really want to know the specifics about uh, the dishwashing detergent that dissolves everything. I, I, do you have... There'd be so much murder in a society with that. But also, do you have, like, ten sets of stoneware in your closet? I mean, you're, you're going to go through them pretty fast. I think it was around this time that they were saying that in the future we'd all be wearing paper clothing. Well, we are, technically, at the moment. I do have to point out just how good these split-screen effects are. I was very impressed. Yeah, this one especially. Considering I doubt the budget on this was very high, they're very well done. And they know when to use body doubles, like in the previous scene when we have him in the background and him in the foreground, and it looks like it's probably a body double in the background, but it uh, he's dressed exactly the same, has the same haircut, so it looks really good. But yeah, here, him interacting with himself, I mean, this looks heads and shoulders above things like... Watch the eyeline. Yeah, the eyeline's great. It's so much better than um, what was the one with uh, Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin. Oh, Big Business? Oh, uh, hey, that's a fun movie. It may be a fun movie, but it's got terrible special effects. Yeah, I won't deny. So if you were choking, would you roil around on your bed or would you run to your brother who's in the other room? Granted, caught in the moment, you never know what you'll do. I don't know. Yeah, if you panic. Quick, drink some of the uh, dishwashing detergent. That'll take care of it. Seriously, that, that dishwashing detergent, it's like, that would be a massive thing to introduce to a society to just casually dissolve away things. There are so many implications to what you could do with that. I heard uh, swallowing it uh, cures the coronavirus. I know, right? That's true. And that's the big thing is going through just the handful of Czech things that I've seen in the last few months. I'm really impressed by their effects work. And especially Ikari XP1 had incredible matte and miniature work. Pantau and... um, Oh, what was Inventor of Destruction had just this astonishingly realistic and nuanced stop motion animation. There, there was some incredible effects work going on in that country that you just don't hear about. 
Carol Zeman was so inventive, and then you even had Young Spunkmeyer working on a lot of things. And sometimes he'll get credit, sometimes he doesn't. But um, take a look at Dinner for Adele, which he did with Lipsky, where he does all of the uh, creature effects in that. It's fantastic. I saw Invention for Destruction as a kid at a Saturday matinee uh, under the American title, The uh, Fabulous World of Jules Verne. And I swear it's one of those movies where if you see it as a kid and then don't see it again for a long time, you begin to wonder if you dreamed it because it's so unusual looking. It doesn't seem like it could possibly be a real movie. When I finally figured out what it was, I was very happy. (laughs) Yeah, and I just came across it because Criterion just did a random tweet about it with some stills, and I'm like, ooh, that looks interesting, and I didn't even know it was a Czech film. And, yeah, astonishing, astonishing how they just take you into that world, and I also want to check out their Baron Munchausen. But anyways, back to this movie. Quick question, so did everyone read the short story? I did. I also did, yes. Kind of remarkable that they bothered buying the rights, because basically the only thing they use from it is the fact that time travel happens in a rocket. Or that the day repeats, yeah. I'm always curious when the idea of a repeated day, you know, now it's very, very common to, even on just a regular old sitcom, you'll get an episode where it's a repeated day, and you see this over and over again. I mean, some of my favorite Star Trek The Next Generation episodes are repeated time, and to have... This is this film so many years before, probably the uh, granddaddy of them all, which is Groundhog Day. I am very curious when that became a thing. When was that uh, instilled as a trope? So it's interesting that in the uh, short story on which this is based, when the day repeats, our, our hero doesn't run into himself which is such an important part of this film. It's not the typical Groundhog's Day. It's actually, it's more the Back to the Future 2 type thing about how you're just adding another you to the timeline. If you travel to the past, that past becomes your future. And your former present becomes the past, which can't now be changed by your new future. Back to the Future is a bunch of bullshit. I don't know if either of you guys watched the German... Uh, Netflix series Dark. Highly recommended, but there's a lot of um, multiple versions of people at different ages um, interacting or viewing it, viewing themselves and sometimes talking to themselves. It's really well cast with the younger and older versions uh, greatly resembling each other. Whoever cast that show did a fantastic job. Anyone else struck by, I mean, it works perfectly fine as a comedy. Anyone else struck by just how quickly he adopts his brother's identity? Well, you know, they're twins. They can practically finish each other's uh, sandwiches. And it's all because he didn't want to upset the other guy's fiance. But then it's like, well, what was your plan after that? Yeah, what's your end game? I don't think it's typical to to, br- to bring in a coffin to bring the body away. That was, that was an odd touch. Who knows what goes on in Prague, though? It, it, it's It's... You know, future times. Sure, it's 1996. Bring the coffin straight to the crime scene was all the rage back then. It just saved some steps. Nice coffin, too. Yes, the suits are in the closet, of course. It's just such delightful wordplay. Now, what about the armchairs? Did the subtitles leave something out here? Because I feel like we missed something. 
I'm not sure what he means by the armchairs. If it's weapons, like arms, or... Yeah, that that wasn't set up. The suits being in the closet was set up, but not the armchair. I know they're talking in code, and he doesn't realize it, but... Yeah. A lot of this film, it just kind of drops you right in. But in a good way, in a way I appreciate it, because it kept me on my toes and it kept me interested. And I kind of like this idea that the one brother is the pilot, but the other one also knows how to pilot because he designs the rockets. Yeah, that was nice, so that we didn't have a lot of him just sitting behind the controls going, I don't know what to do. Yeah, they could have gone like full Clouseau with this movie. And I kind of like that they they still kind of kept him just kind of a laid back guy. This whole thing with the watches is nice too, especially in a time travel movie. Yeah, I really liked Nezvadba, Nezvadba's stuff. Um, I read quite a few of his short stories. You're right, though. There was so so few things that were similar to this. Yeah, and I'm wondering if. Well, and again, I, I just kind of found that story blindly because the both IMDb and Wikipedia say the story is based on, has the same name as the movie. That was not the case with the story I found, so I don't know if maybe there's an additional one. But even looking through the Czech titles of the stories that haven't been translated, I couldn't find one that had the same title. And even, even the Einstein, I Killed Einstein, I couldn't really find a story that lined up with that one. Unless we're just going with the same time travel thing, because there's the Einstein brain as a story, but it was a very different story. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was fascinating digging through his stories, because I know I still didn't read all the ones that you had posted, and I know you all didn't have time to read all the ones that I read. So it's like we, we both kind of read different halves of his output. One of the ones that I did read was the, uh, the new Dr. Moreau, uh, which is one of the most grotesque things I have ever read. <laughs> That that's a dark one, yeah. It's a whole uh, a future with where surgery is obsolete, but there's this whole people that become obsessed with body modification as a way to travel to the stars. And I love uh, his stories; just have such a wonderful psychological high concept pitch like that. Well, wasn't he actually a psychiatrist? Yes, yes. yes as his other job, yeah. Yes. And a lot of the times he will set up his stories as if they were confessions from patients. There are a few stories that I read that way where he would talk about the patient coming to him with these strange things going on. And I'm reading it going, isn't this violating ethics? And I'm like, oh, wait, no, no, this is a science fiction story. I have to accept that. Yeah, and there, there were two things that I kind of noticed echoed through a lot of his stories is, one, it's it's basically more a psychological breakdown of how people react to a situation. And also with a very sarcastic sense of humor. He, he was very funny. Uh, and also he had a lot of stories that kind of explored, I almost want to say a singularity type thing where machines reach a point where humans no longer need to work or worry about anything because machines take care of it all. And he had multiple stories that all revolved around that idea. And it then became this whole existential question where if you never have to work for anything, what does it all mean? I thought that I was going to unlock the secret of this movie when I found a story where it was a man who was captured by the Nazis. He took the place of another person who had the same face, 
And so he was going to go in and find out what this big secret weapon the Nazis had were. And then he goes in and this woman shows him to a room, which is actually a cell. And then all these women start coming in. Like the last plan of the Third Reich or something like that? Yes. Yeah, I read that one too. That's it, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, this is probably what Tomorrow I'll Wake Up is supposed to be. But no. No, it was just this whole thing of basically taking this guy's progeny that he makes with these four women and raising them up incredibly fast and then it's going to be a whole new army for the for the Fuhrer. Which then fails because they have daddy issues. There's a really biting sense of humor to his stuff. So the, the seven roses thing, uh, is he just cheap or is that a thing? I mean, come on, spring for a dozen. Man. One for each day of the week. I, I have no idea. Uh, you're a romantic, Noel. It's not too much and it's not too little. You're probably right. He was probably aiming for that. He is a very he is a very Goldilocks middle of the road guy. When this that he's now pretending to be his brother and meets with this fiance of his the fiance who's part of a traveling carnival <laughs> or soon to be fiance. I love that the circus performers just take up the entire roof of this place. The very precariously placed trampoline. Yeah, boy, that that could get someone in trouble, couldn't it? Foreshadowing. Yeah, it's like this one, I a lot of the Nesvedba stuff, or Nesvadba stuff, you can see like these very distinct themes that he's trying to explore. This one, it's kind of hard to figure out, well, what, what exactly are they trying to explore? The meaningless of trying to change the past, the meaninglessness of his identity that he actually will now be happier as someone else? I think it's mostly just it's a delightful comedy, so it doesn't care, but... Yeah, I can see that. I also see that the the brother's death is actually a good thing, as is the death of all these Nazis, and then trying to give Jan the best life that he can have. That's a good point, too, yeah. It's a double happy ending, to jump ahead. I killed Einstein, I get it, where it's this whole, ultimately you're not going to, changing the past isn't ultimately going to help anything. <laughs> Yeah, that one is much more of what I expect. That one, speaking of A Sound of Thunder, is much more the whole... It's more like the the Simpsons parody of A Sound of Thunder, where Homer keeps going back and killing different things and then comes back to different futures. And so when they go back and they're trying to kill Einstein and accidentally kill one of the explorer's fathers, that he just goes away completely and then changes everything around him. I still think that would be a great pitch for a TV series is let's kill Hitler. And it's literally the first episode is they go back and kill Hitler. And then you have to deal with all of the spiraling consequences. And literally every episode is them trying to figure out, here's a whole bunch of new stuff. If we can shore that up, can we still kill Hitler? If we shore this all up, can we still? And like the end of season one is, okay, now we got to go back and save Hitler. <laughs> and then they have to go back and undo everything that they changed. So it's like, I, I, I love the concept of that. No, I think you could sell that. I would watch. I think I would like that better than the second two seasons of Man in the High Tower. <laughs> what Frank Spotnitz did a confusing show? What? 
I've seen the reboot of Kolchak. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's the only Kolchak I've seen, sadly. Oh, man. What? There was a reboot of Kolchak? When was that? I missed it. You sweet summer child. 2005. Yeah. Who starred? Stuart Townsend. Oh, okay. It's definitely a Kolchak post-X-Files. And it's trying to be cool and sexy. Yeah, but having spoken to Spotnitz, he was between a rock and a hard place. Just that they wanted to do Kolchak, but without any monsters. Which is pretty much impossible. I really think that these space helmets were very inspired by 2001. Oh yeah, and, and they have that similar kind of real look to them. I mean, that's what I like about this movie is for as high concept and silly and whimsical as it is, it still has a very casual portrayal of the future. Excepting, you know, cave girl bikinis. Oh, that's documented fact. I saw that in a film. Yeah. A, another film. I don't, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, One Million Years B.C., right? I think it starred that actress who was Welsh, right? Yes. Of course, we're going to get the whole confusion of the suitcases, which is a classic staple. Love Shirley. Oh, Shirley and Patrick. And again, I highly recommend checking out the series Pantau. The entire series is on YouTube without subtitles, but it's primarily pantomime. It stars the guy who plays the American husband as just this alien in a bowler hat with an umbrella who comes to Earth and has these whimsical pantomime adventures with children. Oh, wow. That sounds great. And it's really delightful and fun. I like that this guy can just get through life not knowing where to go, what to do, and just everyone looking out for him and then shaking their head when he's out of sight. But I also love how they then build the, the contrast between this and then the next time that he loops in. It is nice, yeah. He's a fast learner. Yeah. And that's what I like is that this guy, Jan, is not dumb. You know, that he he's not conniving uh, by any means. He's fallen into a situation that why would he know what to do? How dare they allow Pat and Shirley on this flight? Oh, bless you, Pat and Shirley. Yeah, the little guy back there with the glasses, he has been in so many movies, and he can play this kind of blundering person, can be really sinister, or just a normal guy. And i, I that's what I really appreciate about him, is just that he is so versatile. Yeah, even just glancing at everyone's IMDb pages, even though I'm not familiar with a lot of Czech cinema, a lot of these had incredibly prolific and varied careers. Because it's such a tight community of people, and you have to be able to bounce around different genres and stuff if you're still putting out material. It's amazing the amount of work, uh, amount of output they've had, given how little of it actually reaches out beyond their country. Yeah, he was in one that was almost similar to this. I believe it was called The End of a Priest, where he takes over for a, a priest that was coming to town, and uh, then hilarity ensues off of that. 
I love her line. Uh, that's exactly how I imagine a, a pilot would look. It's it's sort of a meta joke in that, of course, he's not the pilot, but if the real pilot were there, he'd still look exactly the same. Some pretty good effects here with this whole control room in the back. I don't know if that's actually rear projection or if it's just a big picture in the background. Turn on the volume in my headphones slightly because I need to hear that music. It's got a very early 80s BBC Hitchhiker's Guide quality to it. Some pretty good miniature work here. I want every flight that I take to last five minutes and go to that music. Now, the music is original and not stock music, correct? I believe. Correct. Yeah, this was not one of the countries where they would just grab stock music or grab lyrics or music from other countries. This is not uh, Turkey or Hong Kong. (laughs) No, and I appreciate that because everything that I've looked at shows a lot of unique inventiveness where they're not just kind of riding on the coattails of what's popular in the outside world. They're just stewing their own pot. That's a good model. It's a really nice model, yeah. I can't tell if he's sick or fed up. Yeah, I don't know. If I was listening to Shirley all the time, I'd probably be fed up. Yeah, you'd be rolling your eyes. Especially when you're the one who has a gun. Just waiting. I do always love this whole thing of, but we wanted to see the dinosaurs. And that does that does bring up interesting questions of, if you can alter time, as happens in this movie, how is it that time travel has become so widespread and popular of a tourist thing? I also like uh, Shirley's question that we just passed. You know, how is it that this even works and the way her husband just sort of hand hand waves it away i don't know i'll just ask the company because in the end it doesn't really matter but i if if you were if i were writing a time travel story i probably wouldn't think to involve rockets so that that i mean it's an odd choice i mean that i would get obsessed with the implications of it but i'm perfectly fine just being like it's a delightful comedy yeah i mean one of my favorite time travel stories is uh jack finney's time and again mm-hmm. and in that uh basically the lead character goes into a hotel room and sort of thinks himself into the past if i'm remembering correctly it's the vaguest time travel set up that you could possibly imagine it's a wonderful book though but how he gets into the past in the end doesn't really matter he goes into the past I'm trying to think of uh, somewhere in time and how Christopher Reeve travels through time in that one. I just remember when he looks at the penny and it brings him back. I still need to see that one. That was kind of a staple here in Michigan since it was shot up on Mackinac Island. So people would just go gaga. Oh, hey, it was shot in Michigan. Let's watch it. Okay. And wasn't that just kind of playing on the themes of nostalgia and longing for her pastime? So much so that it literally pulls you there? I could see Matheson going with that angle. That's basically Time and Again also, then. And why hasn't anyone filmed Time and Again? That's such a great novel. 
option for what I read, that's been optioned like a dozen times, and no one is able to pull it off. I don't know why. No, instead we get a TV reboot of Time After Time. Yeah. To be fair, it wasn't bad. Okay. I did not even want to see it because I liked the original so much. Oh, Meyer actually came back as a writer and producer on it. And then Kevin Williamson took over, which was an odd choice. But he did some interesting things, and then it got canceled after five episodes. So. Is it one of those where you can see the other episodes someplace else? Sadly, no. There's like oh, four geez. that never aired. Yeah, at least with that Kolchak reboot, they put the uh, other ones out on iTunes. So we aren't missing out. Well, you're not missing anything if you haven't seen it. So he does manage to get the date wrong when he comes back. So rather than having Hitler at the beginning of the war, we've got Hitler more towards the end of the war, I believe. And is that because the pilot set the date wrong, or because they ineptly pushed the pilot out before he could set it correctly? That's a good question. Because if they if they made their own blunder, yeah. I think the, the, the engineer takes the blame for it. So when they introduced the idea of anti-aging pills... I thought for sure that that would come into play somehow and that we would have something to do with anti-aging. Like, we would get Hitler in 1996 looking the exact same as he does here in 1944. Uh, maybe that's the unfilmed sequel. So it's not that it reverses aging, though, I think. It's just that it stalls it. It, it arrests it, yeah. Oh, sorry. He thinks it's 1944. I think it's actually 46. No, it's 41. Yeah, because they're three 41. years early. 41. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. You're right. I said that they came back too late, but they came back too early. By the way, Jerry Sovac with the monocle. I love that. I love his Jack Benny glasses in I Killed Einstein. I, I just want to see all this guy's films. Perfect deadpan comedian. Yeah, and I think I'm so used to him from I, I Killed Einstein that when I saw him without glasses, it was almost a little bit of a shock. Yeah, when I was watching, because I'd watched this movie a few months ago, and I watched Einstein a few days ago, and I'm like, man, he looks familiar. Where have I seen him before? Then I watched this movie again, and I'm like, oh, he doesn't have glasses. Yeah, they really changed his face. When it's interesting that this this is also seven years after Einstein... Whereas I almost would have put this one before that because this one, it's partially the print is older and more faded, but there's such an opulence to Einstein with those gigantic sets and a more honed exploration of the concept that I, I almost would think that this was like draft one and that's draft two of the same idea. Not to knock this film. They're just, they just have very different approaches. Yeah. It didn't sound like you were. But I'm also curious where the state of Czechoslovakian film was at in 77 versus 70. I mean, they were having such a boom in the 60s. And then once the um, the invasion happened in August 68, then that changed a lot of things for a lot of people, including the film industry. I wonder what the what the budget was. That's a really good question. Because it looks great. 
No, it, it looks really professional and polished, and everything that I've seen is really professional and polished. And it, it's that same quality where, you know, a lot of countries can, they work on so much material on a regular basis that they just know how to hone it really well and how to get by on a dime really well. I mean, we, we see that with Hammer, we see that with a lot of Indian cinema, a lot of Japanese cinema, where it's, they're not going to have the same levels of budget, but they can have a lot of inventiveness and just purely honed skill and again the people making this have been working in the industry for like 20 years by this point i mean to go back to to carl zeman again i mean he did pretty much every frame by hand i mean it is a it is a handmade film the uh invention for destruction I love the other invention that we've seen in here this whole spray that knocks you out or freezes you God, when the one guy's leg falls off and the sounds that he makes. Oh, God. <laughs> I like that everyone's still, like, conscious, even though their body's been frozen. They're like, uh, uh. I do love the effect of the camo net. Well, this whole bunker set looks really good. And I do have to say, maybe Hitler doesn't look exactly like Hitler, but some of the other Nazis, they really captured them. No, and um, let me make sure I get his name right. Frantisek Vicenna? Do we know anything more about him? Because he really does do a good Hitler. He does do a great Hitler, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he was one of those actors that just got to play Hitler all the time, you know? His greatest hits album? I have to wonder about Himmler's uh, uniform, the the sort of powder blue. <laughs> Was that an actual uniform? I've not seen that before. Yeah, in black and white photos, I would never know. Well, I mean, he was the cousin Otho of the group. I, ju- I just love how this sequence plays out. It's just wonderful. I'm just kind of drawing it out. Punchline. Oh, crap. Punchline. Oh, crap. <laughs> Uh-oh. Wrong ear. Yeah, I like this. That We know it, but they don't know it. And again, I would be curious to know, like, I mean, we talked about how little of the story is in here, if any of these elements come from other stories that Nesvedba did. Did he actually just work in developing the story for the screen and fleshing out new ideas? Because I know some of the films that he's credited on aren't just based on his works. He actually did co-write them. Now, granted, he's not credited as a co-writer on this one, but it's... It, I would just be fascinated to know what was the development process. Where did all the elements come from? Is this mostly just, hey, the director and his co-writer had had the vague idea from Nesvedman and just ran with it? Because there is a lot of this that even though it wasn't in a Nesvedman story, I could see it being in a Nesvedman story. Yeah, after having read like half a dozen of his stories, I agree with you completely. He's got a great way about telling his stories. I really am looking forward to reading more of his work. 
It also, from what I've read, again, just a handful of stories, but it kind of reminded me of uh, Stanislav Lem's work. Yeah. I think anyone who likes Lem would uh, also like this man's stories. Yeah, and if people want to track down more of his stories, I do think... Again, Mike, I know you kind of trawled the archives for some of the magazine-published ones, but the anthology in the footsteps of the Abominable Snowman is probably the easiest one to find. That was a 70s printing. It's You can usually find it for a few bucks through Amazon. He only had, I want to say, 40 stories total. About 20 of them were published in English. And none of them are in print anymore. Yeah, I went and picked up a collection called, I think it was The Lost Face. And then I was looking at that versus Abominable Snowman. And it was pretty much the exact same stories, just in different order. Well, and then the, there was an earlier one that was Vampires Limited, where it's basically the exact same anthology, just without the Vampires Limited story. That actually might be his most popular work, the Vampires Limited story, because title. that got turned in. Well, yeah, and it got turned into Ferrat uh, Vampire, which yeah. Uri Hers did, which that seemed to actually break through from Czechoslovakia to the rest of the world. I've actually heard people talking about that, like, oh, have you ever heard about the, the vampire car? And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, that is that is a thing, and that was a fantastic film. Do you have a copy of that? Because I would love to see it. I am pretty sure I've got a copy of that. I might even have it on DVD. Because, yeah, that's one I tried tracking down, too. I only saw some clips. Again, like Death of Tarzan, I was only able to find some clips, and the clips were great. And the death of the death of the ape man was another wonderful story where he's just literally redoing Tarzan the ape man, but in a very sarcastically real version of yeah. If you took this psychologically messed up guy from the jungle, rich society is not going to suddenly accept him as the lost heir to an estate. He's just going to end up in a zoo. I don't know my Nazis very well. Is this Himmler? Himmler is uh, in the powder blue. By the way, I do love the added twist of him, his younger self also being on the base. He looks pretty old here. He doesn't look like he would be just a regular old soldier at this age. But gets to be played by the same actor, and then you get some more great special effects work. The, the CGI de-aging is exceptional. I know, right? Yeah. yeah, they hop right out of that uncanny valley. It's not like the Irishman at all. But seriously, it's a pretty good makeup job. Well, I, I know the actor would have been older at this point, too, so I'm curious, did they age him up here, or did they just de-age him in the other one, or kind of like do a little bit of both just to get a middle ground? Yeah, add a little bit of gray to his hair, maybe shoot him without too much makeup here. Then he loses the monocle. 41. Right when Hitler thinks he's on top of the world. Because he was born in 20, so he would have been 57 when they did this. 
Looks damn good for 57. Kept working up till 2000. Most, most of these actors actually did stick around and have really long careers and lived into their 70s and 80s. With the exception being Vladimir Mensik, who like just passed away a few years after this. Yeah, which was a huge loss. I always loved watching him and stuff. And he went all the way back to, and even before, um, Loves of a Blonde. The leg. Oh, God. <laughs> Imagine what that felt like. <laughs> I love how he shoves it under his coat. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> oh, I hate to be him when that wears off. It'll pass soon. Don't worry. I love just how thoroughly their plan falls apart. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, it wasn't until the second viewing that I, I, for some reason, never picked up that it was an American tourist couple. You are Right, when she starts talking about back in Chicago, I'm like, okay, but yet all speaking Czech. By the way, that's one of the best lines. Oh, Patrick, look, it's Hitler. Put your arms around me. <laughs> it's time for a photograph. The only thing this movie is missing is the selfie stick from I Killed Einstein. Hadn't been invented yet. I'm waiting for a parody video of Hitler Hears About Time Travelers from America. Bruno Gans just going crazy. Oh God, imagine Hitler time travels to present-day America and actually becomes politically successful. No, that would never happen. I saw a reaction video the other day from Hitler where he he heard about uh, the beaches opening in Florida and he was just going crazy. <laughs> Definitely blackened his hair. But yeah, the American husband... He doesn't really get to show it off much here. He gets some great dry lines, but seriously, as a pantomime artist in Pantau, he is just wonderful. And he's just as like this posh, upper crust, basically butler type with a bowler hat and umbrella who just happens to be an alien going on adventures with children. I'm trying to remember if it was Polak that made a lot of films about a clown hmm. as well. Yes, yes. Uh, Clown Ferdinand. He made a bunch of films with about Ferdinand. I think he even had a TV show. I wonder what the first use of the mixed-up suitcases. Uh, oh, that has to go back to like, the origins of film. Originate? Yeah, I wonder if it's in silent film. That's probably an old stage routine. It's probably like some ancient Greek play. Right, about two suitcases. He grabbed the wrong wine flask. It's like the bedroom farce. Who knows when it started. I do love this idea of let's just let's just show Nazis them losing. And scored to mournful music. It's, it's it's part of the presentation, because when Hitler turns it on again later, the score is still there. Well, it's just a YouTube video that he found. It's really better if you guys watch it from the beginning. 
shouldn't be hiding under the table. His reactions in this are great. What are these magical flickering lights? It was interesting how the Czechs, you know, who had been so under the boot of Hitler, how they would portray him in different films. I can only think of a handful where it wasn't more, you know, just Nazis versus Hitler himself. There was one called I Justice, where Hitler had survived the war, and these guys found him, and they were going to kill him in the most painful way possible, and they bring in this doctor who has experimented on all these things and knows this really painful way of killing him, and then it becomes this idea of, do you give Hitler mercy? So a little less funny than this film. Even just going through Nesvadba's work, there's definitely a, the shadow of World War II that pops up a lot. Uh, you know, a lot of buildings still in ruin, a lot of still the specters of the SS and everything. Uh, and, and you look at, you know, he was born in 1926, so he grew up during all of that. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, like we talked about um, the, the, the last plan of the Third Reich, where it's this whole eugenics experiment to rapidly breed babies because we need an army. There was another one, chemical, let's see, the chemical invention of destiny or something like that, where it's a guy who works at an abortion clinic who's, he was an old German scientist who was basically using women as a way to try to rebirth his own mother and ends up making so many copies of his own mother that she no longer seems unique and interesting anymore. It's, that, was, that was one of his darker stories. That was a weird one. Yeah, he could go dark very well. This whole sequence is great. Someone needs to cut YouTube videos of Hitler reacting to various things <laughs> with this sequence. <laughs> the cat's the cat's trailer. Like George C. Scott. Turn it off! Turn it off! Oh, ooh, then you can get Hitler reacting to the George C. Scott video and George C. Scott reacting to the Hitler video. Oh, and throw Nicolas Cage in there from 8mm, too. Oh, God, I'm so glad I saw Hardcore recently. <laughs> that was a good way to lighten the mood. Yeah. But no, seriously, that close-up on the eyes is so good. It's like it's comical, but it's also genuinely haunting and disturbing. I mean, even though they don't bring Hitler the atomic bomb, they bring him this. And I kept wondering, would this change the future? If you know you're destined to fail. Yeah, and you wonder, have to wonder, though, is his obstinate refusal to believe it. Would that have affected anything? I love this bomb. Just the way that it looks here. So the great. Devil's machine. Zani! 
And if you think about it, how many how many nukes are in that lake by the end of this movie? Yeah, I I don't think that's the best way to to dispose of yeah, that particular bomb. Probably not. The radiation is just going to seep out for the next hundred years. You're having yourself executed, you idiot. <laughs> I love this idea. And again, very nice. Look at this nice look like clean line between them. He somehow looks jowlier as his older self. I'm not sure how they managed to do that. Maybe it's lighting. I wonder if they just tucked his collar more in the old one, or if he's like holding his head back a little more. Could be lighting too, yeah. And then I love if he literally does get executed by himself. Perhaps they did a boyhood and they actually shot his younger scenes decades earlier. This movie's been in production for 30 years. Well, you see, they went back in time. I mean, they had the music for it. That's the key. Is that going to be the first use of time travel? Once you have that music, time travel is easy. And then I love just how much the green spray gets used here. Basically, I love that it it looks like a can of deodorant. Gentleman's perfume. Nice, simple stop motion Mm -hmm. effect. I love it. You shit ass. I hope they keep that translation. <laughs> I'm really hoping for this new second run that they'll go through and clean up some of these subtitles a little bit at least. Yeah, that's why I haven't really mentioned any of the the lead brothers' names because who knows what names they're going to end up with by the time we get to this release. Well, they couldn't even keep him straight. There were a few times where they uh, went from Charles to uh, C- Carol and... John to Jan. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they're saying Jan, just keep it Jan. It's I know, okay. exactly. I mean, it's not exactly a weird name. <laughs> yeah. I love that these Nazis now have to hide from the Nazis. It's just such a wonderful high concept movie. I mean, we are almost an hour in here, and we haven't even had the redo, which I appreciate. Yeah, I know. They they pack a lot into the second half of this movie. They, they give you the nice hour long to just get all of the setup out of the way, and this is even part of the setup. We're still getting set up right now. This isn't even the payoff. And then the last half hour is just going to be, okay, now we're going to wind back and pay everything off. For a comedy, I mean, a fairly goofy comedy, it really does the whole complications of time travel really well. It's very well thought out. 
Like, I even love when he lands the ship. They're like, wait, you haven't even taken off yet. I wonder how often that happens at the uh, time travel airport. <laughs> yeah, you, you'd think, you know, like a flock of birds or something every now and then would knock things off course. I mean, when they go visit the dinosaurs, does anyone step on a butterfly? Are there ever two Ron Silvers at the same time? Maybe every time they go back to the dinosaurs, they just, like, release a few butterflies just to be on the safe side. <laughs> that would be prudent. Now, has everyone released their butterfly? <laughs> We're good! And this is just a good, nice, simple action stunt work, and works really good, effective, exciting. I did, I did love that one guy who, like, rolled into the snow with his legs on fire. That was a nice effect. I'm curious how much of that rocket is actually there. If it's, like, a cutout, if it's, like, an actual full prop. Because I know when it takes off into the air, we're seeing it. Because that's large. I mean, right there, it looks really darn good. Let me start there. I do love the Nazi uniform over the spacesuit. So they're leaving Patrick and Shirley back there. I don't think anyone's going to miss them. I mean, Shirley is such a big Hitler fan, she'll be fine. As long as she gets her photos taken with him. I hope she brought her autograph book. Because, I mean, right here, I don't know if that's a miniature or if they're just, like, using a crane to lift the full location prop up. Nicely done. Because that doesn't look like a miniature. And then it also brings to mind I killed Einstein when Jiri Sovak is flying on the electric guns. Just reuse some footage there, maybe? Should have taken a Dramamine guy. Yeah, how do you do a barf bag in that helmet? I'm guessing, speaking of Einstein, I'm guessing it's some sort of Einsteinian principle that we have when it comes to traveling through space in order to change time so that you're going faster than the speed of light so that you can maneuver through forwards or backwards but it doesn't seem like that long of a trip. We see if you remove the Infinity Stones from the past, you have to make sure you return them from the point where you took them. But how does he get him back to the Red Skull on that planet? I Well, he went to the planet. Um, the big thing is, yeah, man, they were really missing that scene. I mean, I needed to see that reunion. No. No, I don't think I will. So yeah, we are at exactly an hour in when we finally get him coming back to the present. Or back to the future, as it were. <laughs> One might say. Marty! And 
I'm glad that he was able to listen in on their conversation so he knows that they're not just friendlies now. I, I hope the subtitle preserves that line uh, where he's calling him a chicken X. I don't know what that means, but I want to believe it's just like some future insult. I still want to know what the on dash or no on oh, on dish, the on dish car. <laughs> I was trying to figure that one out the best that I could. That is so authentically Egyptian. It's not a Thanksgiving decoration or anything. Oh, looks it's Brian Eno just went across the screen. All right, now we can do everything over again. Well, Mike, thank you for having me. I, I'm really looking forward to this podcast. They've got people everywhere. Even this guy who works for the airport is part of their major scheme. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of the Nazis that we see in the opening scene that we never see again. So, so it is a larger group. I love he steals his own car. I like that he had to kick the tire and make the uh, the trunk pop up again <laughs> to remind us about that. And make a sound yes. effect. Yes. See, now he is smarter than these guys. And I love he has a plan, but because they're evil, they can't actually allow him to just do the plan. Hey, he scalded himself with tea. That's the name of the movie. It is. Wow, wow, wow. I love that robe. That's a pretty fantastic robe. Yeah, I love how everyone reacts differently to the whole I get to redo the day again. Right. It's like, he's like, hey, I can save my brother and fix everything. And this other guy's like, hey, I can kill everyone. <laughs> Including myself. It's like, there can't be two of me. Why? <laughs> Wouldn't the world be a better place with two Vladimir Mesniks in it? Oh, God, Yes. He made so many films that you would think there were two of them. And then I love it's like, yeah, we'll get this guy to fix it. Instantly hit by car. I love this woman on the street with her dog and that she's just the kind of one of the constants to the world. No, yeah, there's like a lot of little, little things that if you don't pay attention, you're going to miss them repeating. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a sweet dog. Glad that the green spray uh, wears off a little faster in this version than when they were in 1941. Maybe it was a long drive. I'm just glad that when he pushes him down the hill, like all of his limbs don't snap off. He seems a lot more flexible. When I visited Prague, I did not visit the city's garbage dump. So no? this makes up for that. That would have been my first stop. You only know... 
a people once you see their garbage. Snap, snap. I think Benjamin snap, Franklin said that. I always make it a point to visit uh, supermarkets, but I'll have to add uh, garbage dumps to my itinerary. Supermarkets are a lot of fun. Going and see what they have. They, I love seeing the different foods. I bought so much Belgian chocolate for my wife when I went to Belgium, and then I found that it was all cooking chocolate. I miss I miss being in Japan and getting melon-flavored everything. Oh, melon God. candy, melon glazed yeah. bread. They do love their melon. They had this delicious melon soda, but in the time after I went was when they lifted their high fructose corn syrup restrictions. So now all the Japanese sodas just taste like high fructose corn syrup. But you know, that's just the same thing as corn sugar, and everybody likes sugar. <laughs> I like how the drapes match the bedspread. Oh, nice touch. Mm-hmm. Very classy, classy hotel. And that's just, that's just Mesnik. This guy is so practical. You'd think it would benefit your organization to now have more members. And if they are the same guy. But again, if he's not one of the Nazis, maybe that makes sense why he has this kind of more outside cutthroat approach. I mean, today he would be a CEO of a major conglomerate. It's missing the line, well, I don't have to kill you because you already killed yourself. There we go. I do love that animation effect. So simple, but so effective. And they they put a good sound over it, too. How did I survive? I have all my limbs. I had a Bible. Oh, no. Speaking of ancient tropes, there has to be like an ancient Greek play where someone gets shot with an arrow. But they happen to be holding a stone tablet in their pocket. That is the car where you don't want to put a dead body in the trunk. <laughs> At least get a decent tarp or something. Were they out of the Drano fluid? That's a good point. Again, maybe they didn't have time. In a world where that can dissolve anything, the mob would already be using that all the time. And if that guy's a mobster, he would know to use the Drano. I love this guy as the truck driver. <laughs> He's, so He's got a great face. No nonsense. Mm-hmm. I love the car phone. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, true to 1996, cell phones haven't fully caught on yet. They're still still bleeding in. But there are car phones. And it still has a cord and a dial. Yeah, this would have been the era where there's... Before cell phones, you had the cordless phones all over the house with the giant antennas sticking out of them. 
the Gordon Gecko phone. Mm. Oh, I remember mid '90s, our basement phone was still rotary. We always kept the old ones as backups. Okay, I'm so old. When I was a kid, we had a party line. Mm. Or yeah, with several of the neighbors. I was just thinking about party lines yesterday, two days ago. There was a what was I watching? Where they had to? Oh, it was an episode of the Twilight Zone '85, uh, the adaptation of Grandma by um, Stephen King, and the kid was trying to get the woman off the party line. It's such a bizarre concept in retrospect. <laughs> I know I'm I'm younger than you two, but I party lines were still around when I was younger. You're talking about the 976 party lines. Yeah, I think they were just dying. I, I never used one, but I remember my parents would occasionally. What I mean is, um, my family and several of our neighbors, basically, if you could place a call by yourself, but if someone else on the line, one of your neighbors was on the line, when you picked up, you would hear them talking, and you would have to wait for them to hang up before you could dial out or get any calls Oh, in. I see what you mean, where everything was kind of still tied? Yeah. Oh, um, okay. With, like, I don't know, two or three neighbors? This was until the late 1960s. I grew up eastern Long Island. It was fairly rural then. Okay, then, yeah, you guys are old. You don't have to tell me. I know. Yeah, I'm curious too if the subtitles will keep these things like Mrs. Number One and all of those things where he does sound more like a crazy person when he's talking about these different women. That's just a typo. I, I, I when you look at the uh, IMD, IMDb listing for the characters' names, that woman is. Mrs. Nalova and her her husband is Robert Knoll, N-O-L. The L got turned into a one there. It's probably just a typo here. Was I misreading it, or... Did it actually say no, that? No, it, it, it actually had a it had a one, there were, but it should have been an There L. were a couple instances where I, where the capital I has been replaced by one, two. That's just a coding error. Turn this SRT file. Sorry, I, ju- I just checked the last party line shut down in Nevada in 2001. And technically there are still party lines that exist, but only one person is left on them. <laughs> So they just didn't shut down the number. Sounds like my kind of party. Yeah. This has been another installment of Noel Learns About the Past. Oh, he's very practical. How can two of us live on one salary? Hey. He doesn't think that the other guy can make it a salary as well. Oh, man. Imagine imagine how great of a mob enforcer you could be if you could go full prestige on people. You can get both ahead of and behind the person you're taking out. I like now how we have a way to tell him apart from the other one, that uh, he's got the black eye. Mm-hmm. It's very clever. Mm-hmm. 
He's pretty stoic, actually, considering that his brother choked to death on a roll. He's, whatever he says, hey, my brother just died, suffocating on a roll. He says it pretty... <laughs> it's pretty flat. Well, he just had to roll with it. Yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, he was fed up with his brother. He wasn't paying the rent. Uh, he knew he was screwing up at work. Well, again, it's like he got, he just got thrown into this whole identity thing and has just been kind of dragged along for the last day. True. I should give him a break. I love it's the, the second time that he's almost hit by the, the knife thrower. I absolutely love this scene that's coming up. It's so good. And I love this twist of he still thinks he saved his own brother. So he probably thinks that that's uh, Carl coming up rather than Jan. So, I think that explains seven must be a lucky number. She seems to think he's cheap. Yeah. Maybe not in this scene, but with the first time he says it, she basically seems to suggest, oh, come on, by a dozen. JK, just kidding. <laughs> Now things are getting so complicated. I love it. I have to say, my my second watch of this, everything became a lot more uh, more clear. The first the first go, I was a little bit confused, but everything is there. It's all very logical. Oh, you're just dropped in the middle of it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love how quickly they get the chairs together. But yeah, no, no, it's definitely one of those ones where it's like, yeah, the first time you're watching it, you're just taking it all in. It's one of those great heist or time trial. It's, it's a good puzzle movie where it's like the first time you're just taking in all the pieces and then the second time where you can really go back and look at all the setup properly. Yeah, I, I've, I really enjoyed it a lot more on the second on the second viewing. Hey, that's your brother you're talking about. But I love that I love that past him doesn't realize is still refusing to accept that this is not his brother. I saw you die this morning. How can you be here? Chekhov's trampoline. And, and I love how we go from this kind of funny, sweet moment to, oh. Neither of us are dead. But don't worry, we'll change that. The entire family dies. This is why you don't let Thor near the trampoline. And and he doesn't really seem to have that strong of a reaction to the entire family being wiped out. No, no. 
You've made us into orphans. We have a premiere next week. Well, you you kind of played a role in that, yeah. buddy. Very Let's not shift one. all the blame. <laughs> I look how I, I love how mildly inconvenienced blonde guy is. He's just yeah. like, damn. <laughs> it could have been worse. worse. <laughs> Even the flower lady's dead. Don't worry. They'll be as fit as a fiddle tomorrow. That needs to be a Pixar short of a fiddle goes to a gym. Yeah, this is a very easy way to kill this guy. Seems like it would be more of a inconvenience than a murder. Yeah, they're not that. It's not like a suspension bridge. They're not that high up. Like if he clipped his head on a boat on the way down, I'd understand. Good dummy work. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the only time the women that he obsessed over noticed him. It is so thematically poignant. I am impressed at how much we are telling in such a short amount of time. Oh, yeah. And the way that everything is given visually rather than in dialogue, it's very well done. Well, again, they took so much time setting everything up that right now you can just very quickly reference without having to, like, do the thing of, like, flash, do a flashback to remind everyone. Right, right. It's it's really well written and, and edited. And again, that definitely adds to replay value, too. Like, if you don't pick up on everything, when you go back and watch it again, it's going to be, oh, hey. Right. Did you see that? I saw that. Did you see that guy in the background? That's the same person. It's not like the, the typical trope of, hey, we have to explain what happened. They just run with it. Right. Now he gets to act like Carl and be such a dick to everybody. I want to see a whole TV series of the mobster and the Nazi. Just as like roommates while fighting crime and supporting fascism. <laughs> the white family won't be able to go. Aww. They wanted to see the dinosaurs that they were never going to see. Save their lives. The guy who plays uh, the the husband there, <laughs> every time I see him on screen, he reminds me of one of Bob Newhart's patients in the original Bob Newhart yeah. show. I can't think of the name of that actor. He, he kind of looks like somewhere between um, Jack Lemon and Buck Henry. I think the actor I'm thinking of, his last name was Riley, or was the character Riley? Charles Nelson Riley? No. no, like Jack Riley? Yes, it was Jack Riley. He was Mr. Carlin. Mr. Carlin, thank you. Similar face. It's funny, I only remember the two patients of Mr. Peterson and Mr. Carlin. I'm sure that there were a lot of others, but those were the ones I remember the most. 
Oh, the the older uh, lady who always brought her knitting. I liked her. We definitely need more Tom Post in the world. Just try to, you know, sell them on a different package. <laughs> Watergate, you mean? <laughs> what, what would be fun to actually go back and see in Watergate? Someone stumbling around a dark room? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that'd probably be it. Maybe go to the trial. I mean, to go back and visit Dick, that would be a fun movie to visit the time of, but not the actual Watergate. <laughs> you talking about the movie, Dick? Love that movie. He's so much more confident in this version. I'm very surprised that they actually went with English for the bomb, since everything else is in Czech. Even the Americans are speaking Czech. Yeah, even though it's Americans in South America. Right. But again, it's one of those film things you just kind of run with, like, sound in space. I think there was at least a little German spoken by the Nazis in the Hitler sequence. I'm not entirely sure, though. No, you're right. And even the parrot speaks uh, German at the very beginning. <laughs> well, two words, anyway. Oh, no, he actually has the the other phrase, doesn't he? Uh, something about honor. Send these guys out to dispatch them. I, I love this twist. Yes. An infernal machine. The devil's machine. Mohu vám být v něčem nápomocen, Sturmbannführer? Kolikáte ho jednes, admirále? Moment! Well, that is the same person they stop on the first go-around, correct? Mm -hmm. So that would suggest they're still in 1941. Correct. Oddly enough, I believe he's also one of the actors in the opening. With all the old Nazis, too. Get rid of that infernal machine. Back into the lake. Alongside the last yep. one. <laughs> exactly where it belongs. This is how Godzilla happens. A few decades later, it's the worst super fun to sight in the world. It would just be like a giant, disappointing German kaiju just kind of walls out of the lake, eats everyone's sausages. <laughs> Reptilicus. Oh, wait, no, that was Denmark. The German uh, kaiju would be called, called Sturmdrang. You can ply him with beer. But then they start running out of their supply of beer, so do we let the monster run loose, or do we drink? So that whole trip took just 25 minutes, so we're cutting down by half each time. 
Yeah, I love th- this entire third time loop. Like, he just did that entire time loop in, like, the span of five minutes. This is such efficient plotting. And yet it doesn't feel rushed. It still feels, like, leisurely. It feels tense. I yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, but you're right. It, it's, it's, it's very It's efficient. not, like, super high energy, and it's not overly drawn out. It's just got that perfect middle ground of it's moving... But it's, yeah, it's still moving at a good pace. There we go. I killed everyone and now I'm getting them arrested. This is literally a Have a Cake and Eat It Too movie. Yeah, because there are the two female leads in here and he gets to be with both of them. One brother with one and one brother with the other. Or one version of him with one and one version with the other. He gets to have a brother again without having a crappy brother. He gets to get people arrested without killing them while also killing them. Yeah, this is really smart. To see Donald again. The dog. We finally get the the fantastic use of the uh, dish detergent. Yes. Or dish dissolver, I should say. Let's do a middle ground. It's a de-agent. Very smart. The way that he was the body double in the other one, and then... Now it's the, the uh, one putting him down in the tub as the body double. And then I love that he just accidentally dissolves him, too. Doesn't even think about it. Doesn't do it on purpose. I was really worried about that foot. That That's... Outside the tub, I thought we were going to see a, a a foot hanging there by itself after the rest of the body dissolved. Well, as long as the central torso dissolves first, it'll gradually the weight of the leg. Sounds like you've done this before. <laughs> the voice of experience, Noel. <laughs> well, he's a big fan of uh, Vincent the Cleaner. Again, look at that. That beautiful split-screen effect there. It's so nice. See, yep, there's that yep. foot. It's still there. It would be funny if the foot was still left behind. Oh, and in order to hide it, he just throws it across the room for the dog to use as a shoe toy. All our problems are solved. Good thing that doesn't dis- dissolve the sink or tub. Now, there is something at the bottom of the tub, and I can't figure out what it is. It's the bottle. Something doesn't get dissolved. It's the bottle. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, thank you. I guess if the bottle dissolved, that would It'd be, be hard uh, to mark pretty it. bad. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That was an Encyclopedia Brown mystery that involved... Uh, a villain having is claiming to have an acid that would dissolve anything. And Encyclopedia Brown figures it out because, of course, the bottle doesn't dissolve. Encyclopedia Brown versus the, the cleaner who gets rid of the bodies. 
He should be fighting the Nazis. There we go, we got one too many watches. If only watches were an easy thing to sell if you had an extra one. This version of 1996 had no eBay. Because I know that wouldn't be invented for a few years yet. I believe pawn shops were around by then. Yeah, I think you might be right. Oh, she looks fine. Thank goodness. Yeah, it's like, I, I honestly thought when I started the movie that she would be a love interest of some sort. Because there's this, there's this odd focus on her. Yeah, I kept thinking that he, uh, Carol had had sex with her since he's such a dog. But I also thought she would be the, the sweet love interest for their... Oh, I love that shot. Nice. But I also love thought that it. she'd be like the, the sweet love interest for the good brother. But no, we've got the sweet love interest as the um, flight attendant. Oh, there we are. Everybody's in the van. You don't know how right you are, sister. There we go. I thought they were going to do that match action shot with the watch, but we got to do it with the flowers. And then we need we need an epilogue of like an elderly Jiri Sovak hijacking the van with his younger self. Coming out of the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> the one-legged colonel coming out and taking it over. Ah, <laughs> uh, gentlemen, this was a lot of fun. Yes. This is a this is a delightful movie. Yes. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Jonathan Owen, who has written about Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with T's Strange History in the UK. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3. The Doctor Who Method. Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Jonathan Owen, frequent guest of the Projection Booth. Now you're back under the hot seat as an interview subject. Tell me about this article you're writing about. Tomorrow I will wake up and scald myself with tea. My article, it's still in very early stages. So yeah, I probably will not be able to quite dazzle you as much with my expertise as I was hoping. Uh, But uh, this is something the coronavirus did affect, actually, because I was hoping to get some materials from the uh, the National Film Archive and to be in contact with them about um, reviews and things like that from the time from their library. But uh, I think things have slowed down somewhat, really. So I guess I have enough of the background to sort of talk about the background of the in terms of the film industry and the uh, the genre of filmmaking that this comes from. And uh, I've been doing quite a bit of research into the, the UK reception and the UK showing of the film in the 80s. Uh, and that was really one of the things that I was uh, wanting to look at, I think, in the uh, article that I'm going to write. So this is going to be like a contribution to a um, uh, an edited book about cult cinema in a sort of global perspective so uh, i guess cult cinema often makes people think about you know american cinema british cinema um and i wanted to contribute to this book because i think it's going to be quite interesting to look at like cult cinema uh, from other parts of the world and uh, i'm still sort of deciding like how far the parameters are going to go for this I'm certainly going to look at the British reception and I'm probably going to look at the Czech reception as well of the film and maybe to compare and contrast how the film was seen and how it's remembered, like in both contexts. So I think the uh, probably the kind of origin story of the article will be the the this now sort of mythical uh, British uh, screening of the film in the early 80s. Um, so what happened was that um, in the early 80s, uh, there was a foreign language film slot on BBC Two. I think this ran from about 1976 until 1986, and this was called Film International. And it was um, a slot for showing uh, basically quite contemporary, so quite recent um, foreign language art films. So I believe it was on the, I found the date actually when it was shown. I think it was the 16th of January, uh, 1982. So BBC Two showed this film at about, I think at about nine o'clock at night. Since then, it's developed a kind of, uh, I guess a genuine, uh, albeit small sort of cult following amongst British viewers who saw the film at the time and then I guess in many cases could not really remember the title or had only like a vague memory of it or maybe thought even dreamt it or imagined it and uh, became quite fascinated by it. And uh, I guess between 1982 and 
I guess, the early 2000s. I mean, it would have been pretty much impossible to track it down. So it did develop this kind of slightly mythical status among this small group of uh, British um, cinephiles. In fact, this was actually how I first heard of the film, because it was uh, uh, around the time that I started researching Czech cinema. um, I had a a friend who had heard about the film from another friend and all the other friend could remember uh, of the title was this just very vague uh, approximation of the title. And I think the first time I heard about it, it was described to me as being called something like uh, tomorrow I will get up and drink some tea. I think it was just that was all that I think this this guy could remember of the uh, of the title. And um because I was already researching Czech cinema at the time, I was able to find it quite quickly. And at this point, um, there was this series of DVDs coming out from the uh, so-called Golden Fund of Czech cinema, um, which were fairly easy to order online. So I think it was not, I don't think there was a big gap between hearing about it and then being able to find a copy in a kind of very roundabout way was how I, I first heard about it. And I'd probably seen a couple of the other films of this kind already. I mean, I think I'd already seen Who Wants to Kill Jesse. That probably was the film that was kind of like the more revelatory one, because I think that gave me my first taste of this kind of Czech crazy comedy uh, subgenre. So I think to some extent, the kind of shock of the encounter with this kind of filmmaking was minimized a little bit because Jesse is so impressive and that's such a striking and such a strange film. But nonetheless, I mean, tomorrow I will wake up and scold myself with tea. I mean, it is about giving a hydrogen bomb to Hitler and trying to change history and uh, have the Nazis win the Second World War. So I think, you know, by any standard, this is a pretty striking and strange movie. So I think I'm going to look at that British cult. I'm hoping to try and interview a few people who maybe saw the film on its original transmission. And I'll probably look also at the Czech reception too. And uh, I get the feeling that I think for a lot of Czech viewers, I think this kind of comedy has a lot of sort of nostalgic associations. And I think there is a similar kind of cult reception in the Czech context too, although perhaps in a different way. I think, firstly, I think these films, for obvious reasons, are better known in the Czech context. So I think that the, the cult, if, you, if we can call it that, is bigger. But I think there is a similar level of fascination and affection for some of these films. And I guess uh, what interests me is perhaps whether younger Czech viewers are interested in these films. And uh, I'm thinking that maybe for a young Czech viewer, maybe these films now look as strange as perhaps they did to a British viewer in 1982. I'm wondering whether we could sort of tie this into this idea of nostalgia, this sort of, uh, in a way, this weird kind of perverse nostalgia for the communist period. Because I think in a weird way, these films do very much belong to the time that they were made in. I think they are in a good way, I think, artifacts of the 1960s and 70s. And uh, so, yeah, I guess I'm interested in those different kinds of cult response that the film produced. What have you been able to dig up as far as the actual production of this film? I'm particularly interested in the director, Jan Polak. Was he more of a new wave filmmaker? But it seemed like there was a big gap in his filmography. So I keep wondering if he got in trouble at some point because it seemed like right around 68 he ducked out. 
I think he was working in television. Um, so I, I kind of get the impression, and I mean, this is just, I guess, in terms of my preliminary um, preliminary research, um, I get the impression that he had a fairly smooth ride. I think uh, I don't get the I don't get the sense that he was ever considered a sort of a trouble, a troublesome or a, or a subversive figure. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, and I think this is true perhaps in general with a lot of the directors of the these comedy films. Um, I, I think that in contrast to the new wave figures, they had a fairly easy passage. So I guess uh, in many ways, the turning point in Czech cinema comes after 1968 and actually sort of really um takes effect around 1970 so 1970 is really when you see like this big reorganization of the film industry at barandov where basically there is a kind of i'm not sure whether to use the word purge because purge implies violence and it wasn't really violent but there was a big changeover where you had uh, a lot of figures who had represented the new wave or who had represented the more liberal climate of the 60s, uh, where a lot of those figures were basically lost their jobs, lost their positions, uh, in some cases, of course, emigrated. And uh, basically, a lot of people were no longer working as filmmakers after around 1970. And so you had you had other figures who were able to keep on working. So I mean, Carol Kakinia, I think he's one example, and uh, people like Olgic Lipsky, that's like Borlicek. I mean, they had a relatively smooth transition. I don't think they really got into trouble with the authorities. And uh, uh, of course, Atikar Babra, who was, I guess, like the ultimate survivor, who was able to kind of work in every single political regime and political uh, climate that there was. For me, I would I would align. Polak more with those kind of filmmakers who were, I guess, not really would not really have considered themselves as like auteur filmmakers. I guess they were more what we might call, and I don't want this to sound like derogatory, but more like craftsman type filmmakers, filmmakers who could work in various different genres and were not so concerned about stamping a kind of personal style um, in the way that, say, somebody like Pavel Juracek or uh, Jan Niemex would be. I mean, from what I can see, it seems that Polak did have, I think, a, a predilection for certain kinds of stories and certain kinds of um, genres. So I, I, I find that I think he made quite a few sci-fi films. He made a few of the crime films, so the, the, the kind of crimmy type film that was also coming out of Germany. Uh, in the 60s. And uh, interestingly, I think probably that the bulk of his output was um, films or TV shows for children. So, um, and this is perhaps surprising for um, international viewers, because I guess internationally, the films that he's best known for are, I guess, uh, this film, and also uh, Ikaria XB1, which uh, is very much a sophisticated and quite adult sci-fi film. And um, for me, what's interesting is that uh, basically right after he made Ikaria XB1, he made a film called Clown Ferdinand and the Rocket, which is a children's sci-fi film, which actually used the same sets as Ikaria XB1. So uh, for me, that tells us a lot, I think, about his versatility 
about the way he could sort of move between quite a serious film like uh, Ikaria and then make a film like this for children about a clown. Although that does have a kind of a, a I guess does have a kind of a, a political resonance too, because it's about the, uh, uh, the world or the, the, the city in which the clown lives having to be vacated because this rocket is heading to earth. And so there is a kind of cold war undertow to that, but nonetheless, it is still kind of like a funny, cheerful sort of family or children's film about a clown. So, yeah, I think he, he, he really thrived uh, for some reason, I think, in this genre of uh, children's filmmaking. And uh, I think what he's best known for, like in Europe, so I guess in other European countries, is this series of um, TV shows and films about this character called Mr. Tao who is this uh, sort of magical bowler-hatted character who can sort of change size and who gets into all kinds of like mischievous adventures. And uh, so that I think is probably another little wrinkle that I might add to my research because I think that in other European countries, he has a sort of much more mainstream profile because I think the Mr. Tao shows, I think they were shown in both East and West Germany, they were shown in Scandinavia. Some of these shows and films were quite widely seen, I think. So I think where he has more of a sort of a cult or more of a minority interest uh, in, say, in the US or in the UK, uh, these are much more part of the, or at least were more part of the mainstream in, uh, in Europe, in continental Europe. It doesn't seem like something like Writers in the Sky would be that funny versus something like Clown Ferdinand. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I often forget that he made that actually, because yeah, as you say, that's uh, another complete departure. Because yeah, that's um, as I remember is about uh, Czech pilots being ba- who are based in 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 Britain, and yeah, that's much more of a, a sort of straightforward kind of like action drama film, obviously with that historical setting. So yeah, quite different really from from his other works. Um, I would say actually the closest work that he made to um, Tomorrow I Will I will Wake Up and Sculpt Myself with Tea is um, a TV series that he made in the early 80s called Visitors. As far as I know, I don't think this has ever been released with English subtitles. I think probably the best uh, next thing might be uh, maybe German. There might be a German version around. And I believe this was a co-production with a number of other European countries. And that is um, like a sci-fi TV series, um, quite a strange series, because I guess nominally it seems to be aimed at uh, a young audience. And yet it has quite adult elements in it. There is kind of like there are, there are sort of uh, uh, risque moments in it and things like that so it's not entirely clear really who it's aimed at and that is also about time travel so again it's set in this world way into the future where there is total peace and as i remember it's about this trip back into the past to uh retrieve a scientific formula that will hopefully avert like an impending catastrophe in the future so not entirely dissimilar kind of story and it also has a lot of sort of bizarre effects and props in it and um, I think uh, the way I first heard of it was uh, through Jan Schwankmeier because Jan Schwankmeier designed some of the bizarre sort of inventions so there are I think there are these um, weird kind of like food um, products that the characters have where you have like I think basically like a cube 
like a little colored cube that will miraculously turn itself into like a full meal. And so, I mean, the effects are quite similar to some of the sort of bizarre sort of disappearing effects that you see in um, Tomorrow I Will Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea. So, uh, yeah, I would say if, if you're hungry for something similar to this, I would say that's probably the closest that he came to to this film. I think that's a good point, really, to bring in the um, the writers, because I, I feel that this this subgenre of filmmaking, the so-called crazy comedy, I think it is very much a writer's um, a writer's genre, really. I think that uh, and I think from what I can find from the historical materials, I think this is how the films were seen at the time. So I think if you take, say, some of the films that Olga Glipsky made with uh, Jerzy Badechka, um, it seems to be that Badechka was really treated as the sort of auteur behind films like Lemonade Joe or um, um, uh, Dinner for Adela. And um, I think a similar case can be made here that I think Matsurek is perhaps the real, not not to discredit Polak, because I think Polak did actually co-write the script, but I think Matsurek um, is very much the sort of imaginative presence here and... Um, the film was based on a story by a writer called Josef Nesvadba. And uh, Nesvadba, too, I think, is a very interesting figure, um, perhaps comparable in to some extent to Stanisław Lem in Poland. Uh, he was a, quite a major science fiction writer. And uh, I have been able to find that some of his work was translated, actually. So I think if anybody's interested in these kinds of stories there is a a translated collection called um in the footprints of the abominable snowman which i think you can find uh quite cheaply um as a as a second-hand copy and uh yeah he was quite a quite a major czech sci-fi writer and uh tended to deal with um the kind of bizarre often sort of philosophically tinged sci-fi conceits that you see here and uh he uh, he actually wrote um, stories that inspired quite a lot of these films. I think uh, You're a Widow, Sir, and I Killed Einstein, Gentleman, were also based on his stories. And so is the, um, I don't know if you know, the Uri Hertz horror comedy, The Ferret Vampire. That was also based on one of his stories. And um, from what I can see, um, the story that inspired this is a story called Journey in the Opposite Direction. And um, this is a this is a strange um, problem that I have because I think I do remember reading this story. And I based on my memory, I think it was very different from the uh, from the resulting film. And from what I could find, I think Matt Sorek basically added a lot of the a lot of the story, a lot of the story that we see in the finished film. So I think a lot of the stuff about the trio of Nazis and I think the whole Hitler scenario about giving him a hydrogen bomb, I think came from Max Orek. And from what I've from what I've read, I think Nesvadba had some kind of argument with Max Orek during the writing. But then when he saw the finished film, he was I think he was quite happy with it. And I think he felt that well Metzorek knew what he was doing and so I think there was some kind of conflict amicable perhaps but yeah I think there was some sort of uh, disagreement about some of the story elements so as I say I think that shows I think the extent to which Max Solrek is really the the kind of key 
uh, imagination at work here. And I guess, yeah, as you said, I mean, so many of these films were written by him. And I think he really brought that kind of wild imaginative quality. Um, it's very much of a piece, I think, with a, with a lot of these other films. Yeah, I saw a lot of similarities between this one and another one that was based on the same writer's um, story, along with Masorak writing it, was uh, I Killed Einstein, Gentlemen. Yes, yes. I think those two are quite closely comparable, aren't they? Because uh, I guess both of them deal with time travel. And I think a lot of these films do tend to be set in a sort of a slightly sealed off world of their own. But I think in these cases, you do have this sense of like real history intruding. And I think that makes it all the more bizarre, doesn't it, that you're actually involving real events. And uh, yeah, to me, I think uh, I think this film is the ultimate example of that because you are taking, you know, the most serious, the most horrific thing and you are integrating it into this very, uh, very farcical story. And uh one of the things that surprised me watching it again uh, was how kind of casually that is introduced. And uh, I think it's interesting that it's not actually as big a part of the story as I remembered it as being. I, I remembered there being a lot more scenes with Hitler, for instance, and a lot more time devoted to that strand of the film. But actually, I mean, it's it, by the second half, a lot of it is about the uh about the 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 Jan Buresh character and then his activities when he comes back from the time travel and his attempt to rectify various things and so a lot of the film is actually given over to these kind of farcical elements and uh yeah I was surprised yeah how little relatively speaking how little time is given to the 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 Hitler stuff. And it's almost as though there's a sort of offhandedness about it. There's a sort of casualness about it, which I think makes it all the more, all the more shocking somehow, all the more sort of uh, strange. And you can't do better than those three guys that are playing the Nazis. I mean, I love Vladimir Mesnik, especially. There probably are a couple of Czech comedies that he's not in, but I I don't know if I could, yeah, I don't know if I could name them because he's just everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, you know, all, all, all the better really. Um, yeah, he, he, uh, his, 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 uh, work schedule must have just been insane really because yeah, he's everywhere, isn't he really? And, and likewise, I mean, to a lesser extent, Jerzy Sovak, who plays the, uh, I guess he's kind of like the head Nazi, isn't he? The, the, I think his name is Abad, the guy in the white suit. And uh, at the beginning, I mean, to me, it reminds me very much of the way Gregory Peck is dressed in The Boys from Brazil. I don't know if that was a deliberate reference. I mean, I'm not sure if that film would have been shown in Czechoslovakia at the time. But uh, if, if it is a reference, it's kind of a funny one, I think. And he's quite a different character, isn't he? Because I think often he's this more sort of everyman, slightly nebbishy character, um, for instance, as he is in uh, in Jesse. But here, I mean, he does the sort of sinister Nazi thing quite well here. I mean, he is quite a sort of uh, formidable figure here. And I was surprised at how good the special effects were, having uh, him work against himself and Peter Pekoska work against himself. I was astounded like looking at you know other movies where you have people playing twins and just how lousy they can be but here they actually worked yeah technically i think it is really impressive still i mean i think a lot of the gadgets and things as well are really good and the space travel scenes and uh yeah i mean i i I saw um on the um on the Czech DVD I have, there is an interview with uh, Theodor Piszczek, who did the um, 
the props and some of the effects. And uh, he, he talks about the precision that they went into when they were um, designing the, the, the um, hydrogen bomb and uh, also the, some of the costumes. And apparently, I think they went to like military museums and things. And so I think when they were sort of designing the look of the film, I mean, they were pretty, uh, pretty rigorous, I think. And uh, I did learn that the, um, the spaceship, um, when, it, when it lands, I mean, is, is basically like a matte painting. And then I think what they did is they just built the base because you do see them sort of coming in and out of the, of the ship, but you only ever see that base in close-up. So the rest of it, when you see it like in long shot, is just a matte painting. So yeah, there are a lot of these little nice cheats like that which i think uh, pretty seamless i think i wouldn't have noticed without that without knowing that so is your angle more this is what czech comedies were like or this one was stood out just because it was shown on the bbc and so many people remembered it in this kind of weird not necessarily mandela effect kind of way but just that it sh- because i seem to remember other Czech films would show occasionally on the BBC. Like I remember Dinner for Adele seems to have also shown there because a lot of people are saying like, oh, I remember this movie. I, I think I am interested in the singularity, I think, of, of the particular film. I think the fact that this film was the one that got shown. I mean, I think it is a sort of a fascinatingly odd choice really and uh, I find it quite interesting that it was shown in a quite a prestigious art cinema slot when I I guess in Czechoslovakia I mean uh, this would be much more of a popular comedy and uh, I think this is another point of contrast because from what I've heard about the critical view of some of these films in the Czech context uh, it seems that they're not or at least at least until recently were not really very highly respected and and there is even um uh, a critical text about them uh by petra hanakova and i mean she does not endorse this view but she basically says that uh these were films that critics for a long time in the czech republic were ashamed of and so i think there is a certain sense of critical condescension i think to some films and a sense that they would in a way, these are tainted somehow by complicity with the the communist era because they were made in the normalization era, the 1970s. I mean, during really the bleakest years for Czech cinema and for Czech artists. And so that somehow they carry that taint of the kind of conformist mainstream uh, of the the 70s. And uh, I guess in that sense are treated as a kind of politically tainted kitsch showing this film on a sort of like art cinema slot on BBC two indicates a slightly different attitude, I think. And so, yeah, I think I'm interested in the fact that that film was the one that got chosen. And um, I think by extension, um, I am just personally very interested, I think in, in the, uh, uh, programming policies that I think we used to see in the UK. I mean, I think for me, that has very much a personal significance. And uh, for me, I think this is one case in point, really. Um, I think it's one thing to show like a Bergman film or a Fassbender film, but to show a film like this, I mean, does indicate a really sort of either either a very adventurous spirit or just a kind of completely random, let's just throw anything together kind of spirit. And I think in both cases, I mean, I, I have my own sense of nostalgia for that era, really. I mean, I I, uh, 
I would have been too young to have seen this at the time, but I kind of remember the sort of tail end of this kind of programming in, in the UK. I mean, I don't know how that compares with the US, whether the US was doing similar things at the time, whether they were showing films like this. I think the thing that's really strange about the UK was that, I mean, in 1982, there were still only three channels. We got a fourth channel in the same year, but, uh, you know, there was this very restricted uh, amount of programming because, I mean, you, you know, your audience was really just split three ways. And so I think just the chances of coming across something that would just be totally unlike anything you'd seen were a lot greater. And uh, to me, I think just the randomness, just the sense of just the possibility of this kind of encounter uh, is something that's really interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, I miss it. I think, but yeah, I think I, I uh, do feel a great sort of uh, uh, nostalgia for the fact that, I mean, we did used to show things like Schwankmeyer movies, we used to show, you know, Czech animation, if not exactly in prime time, but at a time when you know, there could have been some people who were still awake and who could still catch these things. That's something that has just been lost over the years was the importance of what a TV broadcast could be. And just that it was such a singular experience for so many people. You know, we think back to like the finales of shows that would happen in the 80s or early 90s where so many people would tune in because it was before, you know, by probably by the 90s, we had cable pretty uh, ubiquitous. But when it came to the 80s and people tuning in to see who, who shot JR, those kind of things, and having a movie show in a primetime spot like that could make such a difference and could affect so many people all at once. I know that being a fan of some British TV, like I hear about things like Ghost Watch and just what a huge effect that had or some of the other um, Halloween programming. Luckily, I was just old enough to catch that and, and at the same time young enough to have been taken in by it. So, yeah, I was one of those gullible people who thought that was <laughs> who thought that was real. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, what we call those water cooler moments. I mean, that those have gone, haven't they, to some extent, at least from our experience of television and uh, yeah I mean in, in a way I sometimes worry that I, I'm being too churlish when I kind of have this when, when I when I evoke this sense of regret and this sense of nostalgia for past experiences of watching these things on television because I mean we have infinitely more choice now but I think we don't have that possibility so much that you can just be into one kind of film or you can be into you know just sort of you know mainstream cinema and then you can encounter something that is completely out there and it can have this big impact on you because certainly i remember things that i probably wouldn't have come across if i had been deliberately searching for them and so yeah i think uh, a lot of people of my age and older than me i think we owe a lot to some of those formative tv experiences if we're thinking about like the politics of the film, um, there is this this view um, that critics probably do not have as much now, but I think at one time um, took towards these films that they were somehow sort of politically complicit. And I was thinking, is there anything in this film that could confirm that kind of attitude towards them? And uh, I mean, for me, this is fairly apolitical. I don't really get any kind of like subtext, uh, there's that word again, <laughs> uh, or any kind of uh, any kind of uh, undertow of either sort of conformist or subversive 
politics. I think if we were to find anything political, it's maybe in the fact that uh, I think early on there is a reference to socialist nations having a conference and uh, basically uh, talking about peace. And so there, there are just a few very minor, I think, political touches. And uh, I think the fact that the bomb has been stolen from the Washington Military Museum could indicate possibly a certain sort of stance towards America, where America is being, uh, I guess, implicitly tied to warmongering. And I guess, if we're going to take it a bit further to, you know, to the Nazis, I don't think we could go too far with that. We could say that Jan Buresh, the, the, the sort of the, the, the brother who is the protagonist, we could say he's kind of like a model upstanding citizen. He always tries to do the right thing by everybody. And uh, the brother is uh, much more of a promiscuous, much more sort of roguish figure who um, ultimately, I guess, is, is, I don't think he's a fascist himself, but he's sort of collaborating with fascists. And maybe there is something in that alignment between that sort of personal amorality and this kind of fascist complicity that we could say ties in with a a sort of a communist uh, or a state communist idea about, you know, Western decadence. But I I think I may be overreaching with those kinds of ideas. So I would say there isn't really anything that strikes me as particularly political here. I think uh, for me, it's more about uh, more about farce, more about, um, I guess, exploring uh, ideas about time travel. One thing that really struck me watching it again, though, was um, I think just the representation of time travel. And um, I think the way that kind of anticipates postmodernism, I think this idea that, that time travel has become this kind of uh, uh, form of amusement and this form of tourist um, spectatorship. I mean, I think that is quite interesting. And uh, I think what's striking is the way that that contrasts with the scene where we see the Hitler character in his bunker watching that incredible uh, series of documentary scenes about the uh, about the way that the war ends. And I think there is that nice contrast between this kind of kitschy idea of history as just something that you go and watch as a spectator and then the real poignance of those documentary scenes. So I think there is a nice kind of contrast there. So, yeah, that was uh, yeah one of the things that I took from it, watching it again. Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. No problem. No problem. No, it made my week. (laughs) So, Jim, what is keeping you busy, sir? Keeping on, keeping on, Mike. If, however, anyone is interested, I am Other Jim Donahue on Twitter. Not the Jim Donahue? No, that was already taken. That makes sense. Are you related to Phil Donahue? No, although I did spot him once on the streets of New York City. And how about you, Noel? Uh, still just doing my regular shows, Schumacast, um, getting the, the Batman movies e- edited finally out there. Uh, and Greystoked, where we just wrapped up the 40s with Lex Barker taking over the mantle from Johnny Weissmuller. And you can find those all at noelct.blogspot.com. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
stanu a opařím se čajem, tak jako v tom filmu, měl bych jistý zájem, vrátil bych se časem, napravil bych chyby, musím říct, ta myšlenka se mi celkem líbí, vrátil bych se časem, napravil bych chyby, musím říct, ta myšlenka se mi celkem líbí, tak třeba včera kráčím si pro botu, přede mnou už bez čiců a já si čistil botu, mohl jsem tam někde se vítíže stát, pak sám sebe před hovrem rychle varovat, mohl jsem tam někde Tiše stát, pak sám sebe před obrem rychle varovat. Místo toho vstávám každý den a život plyne, jak neznámá řeka. Po každý, když domova jdu ven, jsem vždycky rád, že netuším, co mě vlastně čeká. show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.